This is the We Are Her podcast for survivors of abuse or assault to share their stories. I'm your host, Emily Kemp, and I'll be having a conversation with a different survivor each week. I want to be sure to include a strong trigger warning with this podcast. The content we discuss includes topics related to violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the We Are Her podcast. Um, Full disclosure, we are recording this episode during the COVID-19 pandemic, and we are using technologies that we have not used before. We're all recording remotely from our separate locations. Um, I'm in my bedroom. So this is going to be new for us, and we're just going to roll with it. But I do have our guests here with us, and hello. Hi. Hi. And do you want to just take a minute to introduce yourself and who you are? Yeah, um, I'm Elisa Zapersky, um, and I am in Washington, D.C. right now in my apartment with my dog and my partner, uh, and I am a childhood sexual abuse survivor, and I offer survivor-to-survivor emotional support through uh, my blog, HealingHonestly.com as well as uh, giving talks and uh, workshops around the country to support survivors in their own communities. Oh, thank you for your introduction. And um, and yeah, we can't see each other, everybody who's listening. So we're going to kind of stumble our way through this together. But it feels kind of nice to, I don't know, be connecting with another survivor right now. And like in this moment of solidarity, even though it's kind of a strange time and we don't have the technology we're used to using for the podcast, it still feels really nice to have you, to have this connection with you. I feel exactly the same way. And and there's so much, you know, social isolation, social distancing, all of this. Right. Um, and I think that for so many survivors, the, um, the coping mechanisms that we have learned to use and develop over time to soothe ourselves and um, support ourselves, a lot of them have been like radically interrupted right now. Mm-hmm. And um, just feeling like connected with each other is uh, so not just like, not just good, but like necessary and essential yes. and a source of resiliency right now. Yeah, I heard a a really great kind of reframe that this isn't about social distancing, it's about physical distancing, and we can still try and remain connected to each other. And that was really helpful for me. Um, Yeah, because, you know, I'm a survivor as well. And so that means that sometimes my anxiety in these types of situations can start spiking. And um, yeah, I just I'm really grateful for this moment with you here this morning. I feel exactly the same way. And um, I just see a lot like especially, um, I noticed this week a lot on social media, um, also living in DC where it's like a city full of like very type A, um, like overachieving people that there's just like this whole pressure of like, uh, like optimizing your time at home. (laughs) Um, Right. And there was this thing on Instagram I saw, which was like, um, you don't have to make the most out of a global pandemic. 
And I just feel like also as survivors, it's so important to connect together to like identify what these stories that are being told about, like what we're supposed to be doing in this moment, um, what they're like, where they're coming from. And, um, and that like, it, we just, all we need to do is take care of ourselves and each other. And that's, that's it. That's it. There's no wrong way to feel right now. Yeah. Um, It's okay. I saw you know, the meme, the meme game right now is just amazing. Really strong. Um, really so strong. good. Thank God for the internet. Um, but someone posted a meme about like how all they did <laughs> one morning was stare at their own leg for 45 minutes. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, yeah. I don't think there's anything that we should be doing. And I think it's particularly triggering for people who have had their power taken away to have all of these messages about others, you know, saying what they should or shouldn't be doing. And the pressure of that is like, it can feel yucky and overwhelming. Totally. And so much of it is like really rooted in capitalism and ableism, which frankly are two things that like got us into this mess to begin with, Right. which is like this um, obsession with productivity and like producing something and and, like being a human who produces things. Um, and that being like our inherent like drive and worth and how we should be organizing our days and our lives and um yeah just taking care of you and the people around you is that's that's the whole game that's the whole thing (laughs) that's all we need to do right now and this is really yeah this conversation is going to be I can already tell like very nourishing for me right now um yeah and like Full transparency. I know I'm the host of the podcast, but I'm just a human too. So, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And um, yeah, I I think that I feel the exact same way. Well, thanks. And um, and with that all being said, I think we'll kind of move into what we usually talk about on the podcast, which is our guests sort of um sharing their stories and what what that looks like and means to them. So I just kind of invite you to start sharing in whatever way or wherever in your, in your timeline makes the most sense to you. So uh, it's, it's always so funny to be like, I think somebody asked me um, like where my mental health journey began or where my trauma journey began. And I was like, wow, that is like a really good question because I have no idea. Um, Mm -hmm. Which is, uh, I think is true for so many of us. So um I think I'm going to start by describing um, where I was when I started doing the work, when I launched the blog, Healing Honestly. Um, It was four years ago, um, and I was working in D.C. here, and I was working at, um, my background was in, like, reproductive rights, and I worked at Planned Parenthood and places like that, and um, and I was uh, harassed by the CEO of my women's rights organization, who is a man, mm. of course, um, and left. And a lot of that was like also mirroring things that I was doing in my, in my personal life. And, um, it was very triggering for me. And I realized that I had been, um, that I had been having some unresolved feelings about my own trauma, um, mm. of being a childhood sexual abuse survivor who was harmed by their biological father. And I, it, my relationship to my survivorship has always been really complicated. Um, like so many CSA survivors, um, I didn't really understand or experience my trauma until I experienced a different 
secondary trauma when I was 20 years old in college. And I talked to so many college students who like, it's the same thing where like that age, um, some because we're like away from home or because we're experiencing other traumas, like we, our childhood sexual abuse, like gets triggered for the first time. And we start experiencing um, and basically reliving our trauma that we didn't really weren't like consciously aware of. And so that was really what was happening with me all throughout my twenties was um, my body and like deep parts of my mind trying to communicate to me that things were really unsafe and that something terrible happened to me. That wasn't my fault that I didn't remember. Um, And, um, and that, um, and that I had to take action in my own life to take care of myself and prioritize my own safety. And so that was really like where, when I started to take action and like, um, and decided I left this job, I had the financial privilege to leave this like really triggering and traumatizing job. And I was just like, you know, I I just got to burn it all down to build it all back up. Right. And can I just ask if it's safe for you to do so, would you mind talking a little bit more about what, you know, you're talking about like your mind and your body communicating to you, like something is wrong. I am not safe. Like what was that experience like for you? Oh yeah. So, so when I was really in the thick of um, being trauma, like re-traumatized for the first time and experiencing what I like would describe as sensory or body memories was in my early twenties. And really where it was showing up for me was in nightmares and nightmares of being harmed by my father um, that like really went into like daytime visions as well um every time I would think about him I would get like physically ill like I would get Mm -hmm. sick to my stomach um every time I was near him I it would take like days for me to recover I would just be like um now what I recognize like very very triggered um and panic attacks and anxiety attacks and um you know, um, Jennifer Freud, who's a, um, a researcher and, um, an expert in sexual trauma, um, as early as like the 1990s, um, was studying how child sex abuse survivors, um, can forget, uh, what happened to them. And then those memories resurface, not as like narrative memories that have a clear, like beginning, middle and end, but rather memories that are really like, reactions to things that are going on in your life so for me it was like a reaction to being near my father or a reaction to thinking about him um or a reaction to a song that reminded me of him and they it was really like these physical experiences where my body was trying to tell me something that was really just not available for me in my mind and I think for so long, I felt really isolated by that. And I felt like I must be the problem or there was something wrong with me. I mean, it took me a year to tell my therapist about the nightmares because I thought I was confessing to her that I was like, that, that I was sick or that I was um, disturbed. Um, I was so stigmatized by that because uh, I didn't know anybody else who had experienced that. Right. I mean, it's something obviously that we don't talk about very much um, as a society or individually. Um, We don't do a lot of education around it. We just it's something we would prefer not to talk about because it's uncomfortable. And um, I also wanted to back up and just I really appreciate that that description of your kind of your body memories. Um, 
I, you know, I think if, if you haven't experienced something like that, it's really hard for people to conceptualize what that feels like. And so we tend to assume that people are, again, having those narrative memories and with the beginning, middle and end. And, it, you know, there's an arc and you can put words to it and you can rationalize and understand and conceptualize it. Um, that's not really how it works for a lot of people. And it reminds me of, um, I'm sure, you, you know, The Body Keeps the Score yeah. by Vander Kolk. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing book. Um, and it really, that book was really helpful for me to understand how trauma is stored in the body and not always as like a memory, but that our physical biology, our neurology, like rehardwires itself. And that can like come back up again later many, many, many years later. And then because it just seems to randomly pop up, it's hard to connect it back to what, what is causing it, you know, like, oh, here I am 25. And all of a sudden my nervous system is going haywire and why I can't figure it out. So it's really confusing to connect the dots. Totally. And I think that, you know, something that I hear from survivors so often is the like, I was fine for so long. Why? And like now, and now I'm not. And I just want to like reiterate like how completely normal that is. And um, so this psychologist, this expert, Jennifer Frey, um, for whom best, a lot of Bessel van der Kolk's work was informed by, um, as early as 1992, she um, was studying this in child sex abuse survivors and developed her theory of betrayal trauma. And what's really amazing about her betrayal trauma work is that um, is that it actually found that um, how little we remembered of our childhood sexual abuse was actually in direct relationship to the level of betrayal we experienced. So it's not just that like so many of us don't remember what happened to us because we're like, we were really young. Like a lot of people think it's because like, oh, you were young, so you don't remember as much. It's actually like not true. Like her study actually shows that how dependent we are on the people who harm us is in direct relationship to us not remembering. And so like what her, her research found was that for so many of us, like myself, when we're harmed by a parent, somebody essential, somebody who we need for survival, um, that we are, that, that, that actually can inform like, um, our, our lack of memory about what happened. That makes so much sense when you explain it that way, you know, that the brain would be like, no, no, this is, we're, we're, we're in survival mode. We need this person because we're, you know, dependent on them as a child. Totally. And, and those instincts are not wrong, you know, and that's also something that I just want to say is like, you know, our brains were not wrong to respond like that. We needed to survive. And that's what our brains needed to do to get us to survive. It doesn't mean that that's how we have to continue to live as we heal and as we move forward. But, you know, I try to always encourage people to, and myself included, to like, um, to be really compassionate about what like child me did to survive, including things that like, were not conscious decisions. The other part of that that I think is like really, really important and and like deeply, deeply misunderstood is like for those of us that don't have these like clear narrative memories, I think there is this like conventional thinking that you have to remember in order to heal. And like mm. there's like literally no science that suggests that that's the case. Um, you know, I've talked. Trauma can actually be re-traumatizing for people if you try to rip open like Pandora's box and like try to like force that part of your brain. Like I've talked to like 
um, a, a social worker who uh, worked with um, in a rape crisis center during that, like in the nineties, during the like Rufi Ruhypnol right. um, pandemic. And she was like, all of my, cl- like all of my patients didn't remember what happened to them, you know? And there was no way they could, they were drugged and like, healing was available to them um and I agree with you like not only is it not necessary it can be totally like in conflict with healing and the other thing is like that uh, like there are different ways of like quote unquote like not remembering or forgetting and some of it is like a subconscious decision like our brain makes and some of it like to like repress things and some of it is that like our brain never made those memories to begin with so we could spend our whole lives trying to like dig something out that like literally isn't even there right not in the way that we would want it to be or that we think we should have to have access to it totally totally and so like that's really been the wild thing about this work that I've been doing is like uh, in 2017, in May of 2017, God, I guess it's like almost three years ago, I wrote this story on my website called something like what it's like to not re- to remember what you don't remember. Mm. And it felt like this confession. Like mm. I had started my blog because I really felt like I just wanted a place on the internet where we could talk about the realities of being young people healing from childhood sexual abuse in a way that felt just like this acknowledgement that like trauma was impacting every part of our lives and also like we are entitled to full and vibrant lives like that both of those things can be true at the same time and also like you and I've talked about this like I'm a Jew and I come from a beautiful tradition of my tribe of like finding humor in the suffering yeah (laughs) I wanted a place where I could just be myself like that and like with a little humor anyway and so and and humor in these types of um issues feels like I think people get kind of offended you know that oh my god obviously you would never want to make light of someone else's story but I think if we can find levity within our own experiences that in and of itself is is like kind of innately healing at least for me and it sounds like for you too and it's like truly like literally a source of resiliency. Mm-hmm. Um, I get some, so I get some emails sometimes. They, they it's been a while um, uh, from people, I think much older than us um, who are like, you're not taking your, what happened to you seriously because of your humor. Um, and, you know, like there are lots of ways to talk about your own story and, what is supportive for you and healing and you know like it doesn't have to everybody's thing doesn't have to work for each other you know but like the happiest part of my problem is like though and why I want to start my own website is because I like literally I would submit you know like stories to different blogs and stuff like that and they would tell me I had to take the humor out and mm-hmm. I just like like do you want me to be like this specific vision of a like sad like traumatized child sex abuse survivor because like that's actually not like who you are I am hella traumatized and I'm funny as shit like Jesus like (laughs) it can be both it can be both in fact and that's what I I really love um some of the online communities that are forming of and some of the different resources that are out there like on Instagram I know we sort of um like our traditional understanding of what counts as a legitimate resource, I think kind of makes people think that those online communities are somehow not 
accurate or, you know, but I do think what's cool is that for a lot of marginalized communities, um, including communities of survivors, we're able to just like create spaces that are all ours. And it's like, well, (laughs) if you don't like it too bad, this is, you know, this is how I've chosen to be in community. And also you can't tell me how to heal. And I've seen yeah. a lot of that sentiment out there in these online communities where it's like these traditional modalities and ideas of what you have to be doing or how you have to be behaving. It's like, nope, I get to decide how I want to heal and you can't can't force that on me. Totally, totally. And it's like, which offends you more? Like what happened to me or that I have found the strength to like find, like to laugh, you know, right. like, like really what is so so offensive and I recognize like from other survivors it's coming from like a place where they've like been traumatized because like they have not been taken seriously but like let me tell you something nobody's going to take you more seriously or less seriously because you make jokes about it like nobody wants to take survivors seriously to begin with like rape culture is so real man and rape culture will tell you that like if you just change this one way about being a survivor people will like validate and affirm what you've been through who like you know don't get it but it's like and not just with humor if you're too angry if you're too sad if you're too if you're too emotionless if you're you know if you have too many emotions if you like you know it just feels like you can't do it right or please anybody so I I've been seeing a really cool like empowering movement in those online communities where it's basically like fuck you we're gonna do this our way totally totally and it's just like I think the one thing so I did this survey a while ago well not a while just a couple months ago but um and it's still open so you can go to my um you can go to my Instagram to Elisa Zapersky and it's like in the link um and you so you can check it out if you want but I was just like curious about um these like untrue stories that were told as survivors that are 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 like derived from rape culture, then we hear it all the time and we even hear them from people we love and then we internalize them. And I just was like curious, like how pervasive some of these are. And so the survey is just like a list of these untrue stories. And then I ask, you know, whoever wants to participate to just like click which ones they hear, you know, in their own heads um, and from other people. And the one that's like, there's some perfect survivor out there. And for whatever reason, like, I am not it. And it was like 90% of the like hundreds and hundreds of survivors who had responded, you know. Um, And it's just like, I, you know, I think that it's, it's weird, but it, you know, that it is like one of the unifying experiences of being a survivor is actually like the way we're made to feel exceptional um in that like there's something inherently wrong with our story or our healing or who we are and that there are some people like they're the whole real survivors and there are us and that individualism of that you know of like oh I'm, I, I'm, I'm not one of them but the irony is that like that is actually one of the most like universal and unifying right. <laughs> being a survivor I am, I'm just like, I'm hearing so much wisdom and, and strength in kind of how confident you are in your identity as a survivor and like where you are now. And I, I'd like to just kind of maybe back up and talk a little bit more about like, how did you get here? Because you, you're like, you know, I can't even see you. We're not even on zoom right now, or I'm just talking to you and I can feel like your strength and like, you know, your confidence and your power coming through so strongly. And just like, what did that journey look like for you? How did you get to this point? There are a couple sort of place. I, 
I grew up, like so many child sex abuse survivors, I think, um, being like a people pleaser and really wanting people to like me um, and wanting to put other people's needs over my own. It's really, truly what I was like conditioned to do. Um, and, you know, something like specific to child sex abuse, when the harm is going on for like so long, right? And even if the physical harm stops, the psychological harm continues, that like, there's just so much gaslighting, you know? And, um, and I remember being a kid and being told I was like dramatic and overly sensitive. And I recognize now that that kid was like trying to communicate that they were in great pain and great harm and didn't know how, you know, and like was doing the best they could. And that the adults around me had no, um, no real understanding of what that meant. Um, Because, like, we still don't really talk about the fact that, like, when kids are disclosing, it almost never sounds like disclosure. Right. Like, oh, this thing, like, rarely is it, like, this very specific thing happened. Like, I didn't even remember anything. It's just that I was crying all the time and having panic attacks if I had to see my father, you know? So I was, I grew up believing that I was overly sensitive, that I was a drama queen, that I wore my heart on my sleeve, that I needed to toughen up. Um, because those are messages that I received my whole life. And so on some conscious, on some subconscious level, <clears throat> the adults and parents and, and, and adult figures in your life were reinforcing this idea that you had to just stuff, stuff it. Like, yeah. You know, I went to a childhood therapist when I was in fifth grade, uh, which is when a lot of, a lot of stuff like um, sort of like came to a head for me. Um, as a child, and I went to a child psychologist, I remember really, really, really calmly talking to her in her office and just saying, like, I don't wish anything bad, any harm or pain to happen to my father. Um, I just wish he didn't exist. You know, I didn't want to feel guilty about like, I feel guilty if he died. I feel guilty if you know what I mean? Like if harm came to him, Um, I just didn't want him to exist. And she said, well, let's focus on something good that that he's good at. What's something he's good at? And I said, I guess he's good at cooking. And she's like, good, let's focus on that. You know, and I think about that a lot. I think about that a lot. This was a child psychologist. And in retrospect, I look at that and I'm like, that kid was so reasonable, so rational, was giving like a very eloquent solution (laughs) and what a missed opportunity to dive a little bit deeper like what's that about and also to just validate you to validate your feelings instead it was like no you need to focus on positive things Mm -hmm. and so I think I internalized that a lot I also grew up and my father who harmed me was not in my household I had visit visiting with him on the weekends I grew up with my mom my stepfather and my sister and my stepfather and my mom married when I was two so he was like I describe him as like my father because he was he was there every day and um And I remember my mom, when I was really young, saying that, you know, about me and my stepfather, she said, you don't have to love him. You just need to respect him. And so loving him always felt like a choice. And it was so easy to love him. And he loved me as though I was, you know, 
he loved me as his child, as his own. And I think that there's such a purity of that love where it is not this uh, like idea that you have to love somebody because you're biologically related to them. It was a choice. And I think that having him in my life made me is what is what made me be able to get through my childhood. And when I was 20, when I was in college, um, he died of cancer and I was there, um, take, you know, helping take care of him at the end. And, um, and I think that was for me, the trigger that triggered all of my trauma was that the wrong father had died, that I had had this father who loved me and made me feel safe and made me feel important and smart and loved. And I had this father that was like, felt like a parasite and just wanted to take from me until there was nothing left. And the wrong parent died. And grief is such a trauma of its own that it can like blow things wide open. And that was the first time I was diagnosed with PTSD, you know, was, um, mm-hmm. was in that grief. And I don't think we really understood leaving me, my therapist, like that the trauma was really complicated at the time. The trauma was like having watched him die. Um, of course the trauma was actually like a lot of things that came to a head so I think and I really appreciate that too I just want to like this idea that each trauma exists separately in its own tidy little box right and that they don't interact with each other um it's much more of like a tapestry where they yeah you can like pull out an individual strand but they are all touching each other um and and they influence each other absolutely and you know I think and that was so that was 11 years ago and now i i'm able to miss like i'm i'm i feel like they've they've emotionally separated a little bit in my life but for years i could not i could not experience my trauma of my biological father without the grief at the same time right. and so it was extremely overwhelming all the time and it was so difficult to explain to people that I was okay until I wasn't okay. And that this death was not just the death of somebody I needed the most, but it was also the, what was holding the, you know, it was the floodgates that were holding, that were holding back um, all of this trauma, you know? And so to me, you know, your really thoughtful question about like, finding finding my own you know confidence and understanding and healing um like like that journey you know it it's just it's it's so layered and I just I feel like it's so important for like survivors to know that that like our healing changes so much as we grow and we change and it's so non-linear and I know we talk about like non-linear as being like it's up and down and back and forth and blah, blah, blah. But it's like not just that. It's not just like we have good days and we have bad days. Like right. it's whole years. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, right. Um, that are and there's a lot of like like conflicting truths existing at the same time. Totally. Totally. And like I had dealt with that when I was 20, but I didn't cut my biological dad out of my life for like another three years. And right. because I was able to just sort of avoid him geographically and, and I wasn't, it didn't come to a head and then it came to a head and then I was able to put it away again for a couple of years. And then it like, and then the stuff with my like shitty boss harassing me and being a piece of shit, like that then triggered right. more stuff. And I was like, no, I'm back. you know, like it, 
it's it's not just like oh some days are like really gnarly it's like no nah, man like some chapters right. are like really gnarly right. but that can still be uh, peppered with like really beautiful moments too and I think that that part is totally. like hard for people to wrap their head around that you can sometimes like be okay and not okay at the same time that you can be really yeah. really in a dark place and still sometimes find like these big moments of light totally and I, I speak on confidence a lot and um one of the keynotes that I give is just about like healing from sexual trauma while on campus and um and the thing is is like yeah so so John my stepfather died like literally right in the middle of college like June like the middle of the summer in between my like you know uh sophomore and junior year and so I had this like line in the sand but I also like have wonderful memories from my life after college all of those things are true like I cried hysteric I cried so hard that I like thought I was going to like I thought I needed to like go to a doctor because I thought something was like truly breaking in my body as I cried and that like the same night I would then go out and like go dancing and then like fall asleep spooning a burrito in my bed. And like, <laughs> oh my God. So many college flashbacks with that, that one. Right. <laughs> right. And like all that shit is true all at once. Right. And that's like really what inspired me to do my work is I was like, I was like, all of this shit is true at once. Like we are also like fully alive and trauma is impacting everything and that's okay. Like, and we're we so culturally are... bad at the, at the nuance of all of that, which is why I really appreciate these conversations where we're kind of shedding light on the very complicated nature of all of this from a first person perspective and not just from some, you know, article, scientific article or from some psychologist or just like, it's kind of, it's real and raw and it's true. Totally. Totally. And, and I agree. And I think, you know, we as survivors, we're like supposed to have one, it's like one of two options, which is either that we're like broken and damaged goods and that we need to like self isolate and heal before we're ready to be like good for other people, which is like the like bullshit of like, oh, I need to love myself before I can love anybody else. And it's like, yo, some of us have like are missing the neurotransmitters to love ourselves, right. but like we are still worthy of love. Right. But, um, and so there's like the, the like self isolates, like we're broken and damaged. And then there is the like, oh, we have to pretend like this isn't impacting us at all. And also like, that, we're that you're like, if you're broken or damaged, that you're going to harm other people. I really dislike oh God, yeah. the message that survivors like have to stay away from each other until they're like, you know, some, some, you know, cookie cutter idea of what we think healed or healed enough looks like before you're yeah. allowed to go be in connection with other people it's just such a harmful narrative totally totally and at the same time I feel like I feel like there's so there's like an important nuance to that too which is like um and it, it was a conversation I was having with a friend the other day which is also that like we are also as survivors we are responsible for the harm that we cause other people yeah. the way everyone is responsible for the right. harm that we cause other people and like all of those things can be true at the same time yeah. right which is like it, it doesn't mean that we have to isolate it means that like when 
we are going through a difficult time and we may inadvertently cause harm to other people. We have to hold ourselves responsible and accountable to that. But that also doesn't mean then you're supposed to isolate. It just means like everybody's needs and feelings matter. And that there are ways to do accountability well without making people feel ashamed or, or like unworthy. Totally. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I mean, I think like of the things that I get requested to write or talk about, so much of it has to do with like sex and dating and relationships. And I just think there's this idea, especially I think for child sex abuse survivors, we're just supposed to be grateful that we're like, that we made it out, that and like move on with our lives, whatever that means. And it's, and but like there's not always a lot of like attention given to the fact the like now what of it all like now what are we supposed to do and also that like it's totally like you don't just have to be like grateful that you made it like you can you're like entitled to and worthy of like a really full badass life that you want um sometimes I get frustrated because like I have a really amazing partner and my husband Charlie but sometimes people talk to him or about him like um he's just like this they call him you know like this mensch um and he is like a really amazing awesome human like don't get it twisted right sometimes I feel like people are sort of saying it as though like he he's just like this mere you know this like sort of miracle worker or um like it's so amazing that he you know like puts up with my shit but like yeah, I'm an awesome partner too. Right. Like I have so much love to give and I'm funny as shit, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> Which we can. And I'm a goddamn delight. And you know, like I also like he's also super lucky. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. He isn't this like um and I think we we have the like knight in shining armor sort of narrative, especially in heterosexual relationships of, you know, like somehow he is saving you or like put it yeah putting up with I think is the term you used I think that's really accurate or like wow what a saint what a saint for being with someone who's been through what you've been through and um it's really harmful and just not true yeah totally and it like completely erases like sort of the full humanity of us Mm -hmm. as survivors um and all that we have to offer yeah and, and so I yes I agree that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yes, I agree. So then you're sort of coming into, you know, to kind of get back to like the kind of narrative arc of, of your experience. Yeah. Like, shit hit the fan after your stepdad died. And yeah. it's, yeah, that journey therein after was, it sounds like pretty up and down. When did yeah. you, like, where did it go from there? So, you know, it was so mixed. You know, I was dealing with a lot of the first, um, sort of uh body memories like having a lot of nightmares and things like that and it was impacting my ability to have sex or feel safe in my body and um and at the same time like I was young and drinking tequila and going dancing and having fun and going on adventures and like you know all of those things again were true at the same time when I came back to DC as a young professional like 23 Uh, my biological dad gave me this like ultimatum that either I was to spend more time with him or um, 
and like go to counseling with him and all this stuff or nothing. Like basically he had was calling bullshit on like the boundaries that I had established to keep myself safe. And, you know, that ultimatum for me was really a gift mm. um, because I felt like the guilt of pulling away from him might kill me. You know, I was conditioned from the day I was born to see him as a victim and to prioritize his needs over my own. And so I felt really sorry for him all the time. And that is what kept me there and made it hard for me to protect myself. And that ultimatum just like put into stark contrast, like, oh, if I say this will kill me. And um, this like trying to find some fake middle ground with this person who didn't who was calling bullshit on middle grounds, you know, wasn't an option anymore. And I think that making that decision at the time, the only person who really knew what I was going through and had my back aside from my therapist was my best friend, Kate, who is an extraordinary person. And, um, it was hella trauma informed because she has been working to support survivors since like she was a teenager. And, um, And so she really knew how to be there for me. And it was a time where people didn't understand why I was making that decision. Um, I didn't have the language and feel comfortable yet explaining what I had been through as childhood sexual abuse because I was still felt like ashamed that I didn't remember things um, and felt like that was invalidating me. And I had to make that decision to cut him out of my life. I think there are these bigger social narratives, too, that, like, family first no matter what. You know, Mm -hmm. you have to make it work with your family and go to therapy and, you know, you know, like, forgive. And it's like, no, you as an individual have every right to put in place whatever boundaries are healthy and safest for you, even if that means cutting out someone important like a parent figure, you know? Totally. And I think that, you know, my friend Amitha Swadeen, who is the founder of the Mirror Memoirs Project, uh, they call it blood supremacy. And I think it's so true. The idea that like, you know, I, I am a huge fan of conditional love. And I Mm. sort of cringe every time, you know, if I'm at a wedding and people talk about unconditional love and vows and stuff like that, like love should always have conditions. Right. (laughs) it's really important to me. Um, and I totally agree with you. You know, there's so many of the like movies I can't stand of like the shit parent who then like has some redemption arc. And it's just like, like that. I'm not saying that like, if somebody harmed you, that you have to cut them out of your life. Like everybody's journey is different. Um, but for me, I just felt like crippled by that. And, um, and I just, I was overwhelmed by that sense of guilt because of all of those narratives that like, you're not supposed to do that or that, right. you know, I, for so many of us that are survivors, I hear this from people all the time. And I felt this way. It was like, oh, I am responsible for ruining my family. Right. I'm the one who ruined the family. And it's like, nah, dude, like they, they right. ruined what was These are the family. consequences of their own actions. Totally. And at the same time, the thing that I think is also really complicated is like, you know, so I was like conditioned to feel sorry for him. At the same time, you know, the really uncomfortable truth that is so hard for us to talk about with childhood sexual abuse is so many people who harm, they themselves have been harmed. And we have this binary of perpetrators and victims. And we really don't have um, the right, we don't really create the space to have the conversations 
about the fact that like so many people who cause harm have been harmed. And yet that also doesn't mean that they're not accountable and responsible for the harm they cause. Right. You know, and you can I, have empathy I, for someone else's experience while still doing what you need to do to be safe for yourself. Totally. And I really struggled with that. And I like definitely am in gratitude to all the incredible leaders in the transformative justice movement. Um, shout out to the book Beyond Survival, which just came out, which is about um, which is about uh, just like this amazing uh, transformative justice anthology. Um, but uh, I'm like really grateful to all those leaders for basically teaching me that. <laughs> and because I felt really crippled by that, I thought because I could see my father's humanity and I could see that, you know, maybe like things that he might have been a victim of certain things in his life because I could see that, that that somehow invalidated um, me protecting myself. Um, and now I can finally see like, oh no, again, all of this can be true at once. Right. Which is hard to wrap your head around even. Um, yeah. Even as someone who's maybe experienced all of that, it's, it's, our brains are just um, not always hardwired to like, conceptualize the overwhelming nature of like what it means to fucking exist <laughs> totally and like you know when we talk about sexual violence still so much of our language and our orientation to it is like rooted in the criminal justice system yep. where there are victims and there are perpetrators and there and like there's that binary you know and so that's the way like things are like truly organized um and so it, it like it goes really you know it goes deep and we get those messages like everywhere but i think for me like really receiving that ultimatum that really forced me to like forced the decision of like am i going to protect myself um and my own safety and my own sanity um and being forced to do that with uh, in the face of a lot of resistance from people who mm. were very important to me right um really was sort of this in retrospect really powerful important experience that I went through that really made me realize like even you know this people pleaser person that I was that like I at the end of the day, like I had to figure out how to be my own person and how to protect myself. And, um, I think that that really set the, the, the road for and the path for which I've been on since then. Yeah. So it was a turning point. It really was. It really was. And, um, and then, you know, I went back to some people pleasy kinds of ways and it, it ebbed and flowed and really until I was 27 and I had that work situation where my boss was really replicating a lot of behavior that my, my dad had had, not in a physical way, but in a, a mental and psychological way. And my dad was trying to reenter my life as well. And so it was all just like crescendoing. And that's when I, again, had to be like, okay, I feel like there are so many things in my life that were trying to force me to hide what I had been through. And for me, what was really healing was the thought of, I'm just going to put my name out there. I'm going to make it so Elisa Zapersky goes directly to healinghonestly.com mm -hmm. and you're going to see, I am this child sex abuse survivor. This is what happened to me. No one can ever force me to hide again. And I say that 
with the caveat of like, I have heard from so many survivors with the, in this particular time within the Me Too movement that feel this like tremendous pressure to be public about what they've been through. And in part, because like we, 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 we like idolize or really put on a pedestal survivors that are public. Um, and that can like create the impression that, you know, survivors who aren't public are somehow like less courageous or brave, which is totally bullshit. Just like getting through the day as a survivor is an act of courage. Um, but for me, being public is actually what made me feel safer. Right. Um, And I say that because that is not true for everybody. Right. And I think there's power, obviously, in reclaiming your story um, and story sharing. I've done some workshopping around, like, the implications of story sharing. And it doesn't always have to be public. Like, even just writing it in a journal is you taking the story from inside and externalizing it in some way that you have total control over. So story sharing is really important, but it doesn't have to be in a super public way. I mean, if you want to, awesome. It can be between one other person. It can be between a therapist. It can be to yourself. You know, there's so many ways to do some of that work. Um, and I really appreciate you saying that. And that's, and I'm so glad you said that because I think that's so important, which is like, there are, you know, even I sort of talk about this, like there are so many degrees of like disclosure, um, both in terms of like sharing with somebody that you can trust but then also like where I see this come up a lot um in the work that I do and in conversations with survivors is like around dating which is like do I tell the person that I'm seeing that I'm a survivor and like first of all it is totally your call you you are the expert in your own safety and you're the only one who's the expert in your own safety so you know what's best for you but also if you do decide that you want to say something like there are so many degrees of sharing that are available to you um and I think again there's this sort of like all or nothing feeling that um that is put upon survivors like either I have to like bear my soul to you and like be like let me list my traumas in alphabetical and chronological order to you now like a spreadsheet versus or I'm going to pretend like this really important thing is not a part of my life um, and I have to hide it totally Um, yeah and there's like a lot of middle ground you know and that disclosure can happen over time and that it is often dependent on trust and that you don't have to tell somebody like all your shit on the first date and that if they earn that trust and they become a safe person to you, disclosure can happen, yeah, incrementally. And the depth to which you want to disclose is completely up to you. How you want to disclose is completely up to you. I was talking with a survivor who um, I thought this was so interesting that um, they use text message be- with their partner because saying it out loud is too hard. So if there's something that they really want to tell their partner, they will like go and have them go into a separate room and they'll text it to them. And then it lets that person like digest it a little bit kind of on their own terms. And then they may or may not come together and talk about it later in person, but you can get creative. Like there's not one right way to do it. Totally. And like, also the thing that I, I tell folks is like, you can also tell them exactly how you want them to re- respond. Yeah. And like, you know, like they may or may not. But the thing is, is that like most people want to be told exactly yep. how to be supportive in that moment. So it can look like, um, like when I was casually, like I was having a lot of casual sex, like 
basically after I cut my dad on my life and I was like feeling some sort of healing for the first time for me, mm-hmm. um, I was able to like feel safer in my body and like want to have sex, which was really exciting and awesome. And so I was having like casual sex, which was really cool because I could experiment with disclosing and it felt like the stakes were super, super low Right. because I like didn't really care about these people and I didn't know them really well. And so it always felt like, oh, well, if I disclose and it's like, doesn't go well, well, like fuck them. Or if I have sex and I'm triggered and I need to stop, like the, it just felt like very stakes are low. Mm-hmm. I can, I can like fully, fully prioritize my own safety. Um, but one of the things I would say is like, Hey, just so you know, like this thing, this, like, uh, I like experienced something in my life that, uh, like still impacts me today, like a bad thing that happened that still impacts me today. Um, I don't really want to get into it, but you know, like, I'm like, I'm into you. I want to do this. I want to like have sex, whatever. But like, if I, I might have to just be like, yo, we need to stop. Um, and just know that like, when that happens, it has nothing to do with you. Mm. Um, it's not something you did wrong. Um, and I just want you to say like, oh yeah, that's cool. I hear you. No worries. I won't take it personally. Um, and that's what I want to hear from you. Nice. Did it work? You know? Oh yeah. People love being told what to do. Well, especially with, with, you know, again, because we don't have these conversations very openly and transparently, um, you know, people feel like inadequately prepared to how to, how to respond. And so no one wants to say the wrong thing. No one wants to accidentally harm someone. So if you make it clear for them what you're expecting, it's like pressure off to just, you know, have to wing it, you can just give them what they want. Totally. And I just had this conversation in the context of friendship with a survivor. She was saying that um, she has had a really difficult time maintaining friendships because she um, will get closer to people and then her trauma will resurface and she will need to turn inward in order to manage that. And, And that doesn't include being social. And then by the time she feels like she wants to be social again, like those friendships have lost momentum. And, and that's really a cycle that's been really difficult for her. And so something we talked about, I was like, it was, you know, she felt like she was um, burdening them by, she didn't want to like fully disclose to them. And she felt like she was burdening them by like um, telling them that anything was up, you know? Um, or asking anything from them. And so we, we role-played and we practiced together. And um, I said to her, like, okay, well, how would it make you feel if I said to you, listen, um, I'm going through a really difficult personal thing right now um, that affects my mental health. Um, I don't really want to get into what it is, but just know that, like, you know, when, when it happens and I like need to pull away that it's not because like, I don't want to hang out with you or a friendship. I actually like really like hanging out with you and being friends. It's just that like, I need to do that. So when that happens, uh, would you like still be down to continue to invite me to things, even if I like can't come? Um, and could you like, just send me a text, like, you know, once a week or whatever to check in? Like, I was like, how would that make you feel? And she goes, it would make me feel really important. And like that person trusted me and thought I was, I was like, a, you know, like 
it would make me feel good about who I was as a friend. And, and I was like, dude, friendship. right. And I was like, well, why can't you ask that? You know, like, so you can be the one to say that to them too. You know, right. like people, people want to be told exactly what to do. And I really I appreciate you that. modeling that for us right now, because that was like, that's a very practical, like tangible language that people and kind of exercise people can take away. I think that's awesome. I'm so glad. Yeah, it, it's, it's, um, I have this fundamental belief that, I mean, like some people are fucked, don't get me wrong. Yeah. And like, I've dealt with some people that like really, truly are very selfish and shitty people. We all have. Those people don't really have a place in our journey. But for the vast majority of people, they're good people who are totally clueless. Right. Who need to be told exactly what we need them to say. And I think we as survivors are conditioned to feel like our needs are a burden um, on other people. And in reality, like what we are doing is sort of a gift of friendship because mm. we're inviting people in and we're telling them like, you matter to me. Um, and here are the ways that you can be there for me. And, and I think that it's actually an opportunity to like, to celebrate that friendship um, versus like severing it. And to grow closer and uh, build a stronger connection in a safe way. Mm-hmm. Totally. Totally. And I just, there are so many, there's so many, there's so much space between these, these, this black and white thinking and this binary. And that like, just for me straight up comes from like 11 years of therapy because I am a classic black and white, all or nothing thinker. Um, I think I'm like that. I mean, it's hard. Like I have no life before my trauma, so I can't like compare. I think I would probably be like this even if I wasn't a child sex abuse survivor, but being a CSA survivor and a trauma survivor just like makes it so much more extreme. Um, But so I, I, a lot of my life has been organized around experimenting with what it would it be like to be in between those, those polar opposites. Mm, I love that. That's a really, yeah, that's like a very, poignant reflection I I appreciate that a lot I'm so glad yeah it's just I love having these conversations with folks because you know I, I'm also a child sexual abuse survivor I've also like kind of built my my adult life and career around these issues and every time I have a conversation with someone new they are able to like gift me with new language to talk about it you know and new perspectives and new ways to think about it and um I just love, I love that. And it, it feels like a real, it feels like a real gift. That's really beautiful to hear. Um, yeah. And I, and I know that you had mentioned therapy as being like this, a very obviously huge part of your healing. I'm, I'm wondering if you can speak to like what else for you right now or in your journey has been healing or continues to be healing. Totally. So for me, yeah. Um, I have done cognitive behavioral therapy on and off for 11 years with three different therapists mm-hmm. because I specifically enjoy women of a certain age and they keep retiring on me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I say that with the caveat that like I, my personality and the way my brain is wired um, is like perfectly aligned with cognitive behavioral mm-hmm. therapy, with CBT therapy and talk therapy for so many survivors. Um, that's just not 
what's healing for them. And so I just want to say for anybody who has tried talk therapy and for whom that wasn't um, a helpful healing modality, just know that like, there's nothing wrong with you. Like there is a therapy that's right for you, whether that therapy is like gardening or journaling or art um, or some sort of like physical, more physically oriented. Yeah, Yeah, totally. And so, you know, there are forms of trauma for which like sit like talk therapy is just never going to be very accessible and so something that I feel passionate about is like um deconstructing this like pressure I think there is on survivors that like there's this one way of healing especially I feel like it's a healing that's very oriented to like cis white privileged hetero women 100%. That, like therapy and yoga and like pseudo wellness stuff anyway um, so I just like feel very important about that yeah. strongly about the caveat for me, um, a lot of different things have been healing at different times. And so what's been interesting is to see, like, as I have changed and grown, my needs have changed and grown or shifted. So for a long time, like when I was dealing, recovering from that job and when I was like in the burn it all down stage, I actually learned how to box and I went to a boxing gym for three years and I like beat the shit out of bags and, you know, and, and that was actually more helpful for me, honestly, than like a lot of talk therapy was for that time. Um, it was like very physical, very somatic. Um, and when I would be triggered, it would like take me down. Um, and that was like really awesome. Um, something also that's been really healing for me is my puppy, my dog Yay! Franklin. He is a Australian Labradoodle, so he's mostly Muppet. And <laughs> <laughs> he's ridiculous. Uh, and he gets me out of bed every morning. And he gets me out of my own body. Um, and that's been really important. Um, I want to sort of uh, also highlight some things um, because depending on when you know this airs, a lot of us might still be spending all of our time in our apartments. Um, and to offer like some things that have been changing or healing to me over time that like can be done in our homes, um, especially understanding that for a lot of us, we're in homes where we're not safe. Um, so for me, when I've been triggered, something that's been really helpful is to take a really, really cold shower. Like when I feel like I'm sort of out of my body and leaving my body, that like water sort of like shocks me mm. into my body. And that can be really um, helpful for me. Meditation sometimes helps, sometimes it doesn't. Um, puzzles are really helpful for me. Mm. Um, again, to like it it taps into the like rational part of my brain versus the more like traumatic traumatized part of my brain. And it like gets me into something else. So like doing jigsaw puzzles is really helpful for me. Um, I also found tremendous healing in community Um, and being in community with other survivors. I think, you know, what you all do with your online meetups is, is such an incredible service. Um, But just like, Honestly, in coming full circle to what we talked about, um, you know, your question about like where, when, you know, like this journey of becoming a, um, really confidently talking about my own survivorship and um, trauma for me really stems from knowing how deeply I'm not alone. 
Um, and so it's wild to think when I started this work, I didn't know other child sex abuse survivors. Turns out I was surrounded by child sex abuse survivors my whole life. Right. And it just took me like being public about it to know that. But um, knowing how many of us are out there and feeling the same way as us um, really has been probably the single most transformative thing in my life um, in terms of my healing. Yeah. Yeah, community healing um, is a huge important piece. I mean, humans are just hardwired to to desire to be in community with each other for survival reasons. And I think on a, like a really primal level, our, our bodies and our brains know that. Um, I've also said this before on the podcast, and I want to say it again because I think it's a really important message. Um, someone told me once about how, especially with interpersonal violence, because that type of violence is happening in a dichotomy or with other people, it's really hard to heal in isolation and that mm -hmm. it can be a really um, transformative experience to heal with other people, you know? So if you were harmed by someone and that's what caused the trauma, then it can be a corrective experience to then heal with other people. And I just, that's always stuck with me and I think is a big driving value in, in what We Are Her does and trying to build a community that's accessible to survivors so that they don't feel alone. Because feeling alone and feeling isolated um, is, is just so harmful. And it can exacerbate mental health issues. It can exacerbate feelings of shame and stigma. Um, yeah. And it, it's why I'm, it's one of the many reasons why I'm so afraid right now um yes. for other survivors um and for because um because of being in this time of such deep isolation although talking to you the last hour I now I'm realizing my anxiety has been the lowest it's been of like a week yeah which is really amazing um yeah when I wrote like four three years ago I wrote the article about not really remembering and it felt like this confession like I was confessing to my readers like hey I just want you to know that like this thing that I you know like I feel like I've been hiding from you that I don't actually remember what happened to me and like I have to be honest with you about that and it felt like you know it could it, I, it felt like risky almost to say it right. you know and then what was really wild is that it went viral and it remains the single most popular thing on my website all these years later. And I'd still say like 80% of my traffic is for people Googling, like cannot remember childhood sexual abuse. And it's overwhelmingly what I hear from other survivors about. But I even then posted a other story that I update with just the data of how popular that story is mm -hmm. that I update like every month because I think it's really important as people read that then they realize like the magnitude of how many of us feel exactly the same way right. you're not right? alone you're not crazy you're not making it up your experiences are valid and this isn't even like totally and it's not even that it's like that it's like this sort of niche experience no. it's actually like extraordinarily common and right. you know um my friend Amitha, who I mentioned, the founder of, of Mirror Memoirs, a project that um, centers LGBTQ, um, Black and Indigenous people, as survived child sex abuse survivors of color and their leadership, they talk, they're a CSA survivor and they, they say, you know, um, as horrific as, as their experience was, you know, what was also so harmful was thinking that they were an exception and that it was exceptional. Right. 
and um and the harm of that of thinking that you know that they were they were alone and what they were going through and I I think about that really often and I feel exactly the Mm, same way me too um so I think first of all just thank you so much for everything that you shared your vulnerability you know just like you're such a lovely you are a damn delightful human being you are a god (laughs) wait what did you say yeah you're a goddamn delight I'm a goddamn delight. I'm a goddamn delight. And so um, I've just like so enjoyed this conversation. And what I I really like to do um, at the end of all of our our podcast episodes is just ask if there was kind of one final message that you wanted to share for any survivor who's listening, what would that be? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, For me, Um, If there's one thing I want, I I could communicate to every survivor, it's that even if you have trouble believing yourself, know that I believe you and that I know that your pain is real and your pain matters and that um, healing is available to you. You are not alone in this. And, um, and I know that, that, that your pain is real. That's a really important message that not all survivor gets to hear. So I, I love that that's kind of the note that we're ending on. Me too. And I just want to thank you for finding, Ooh. you know, clever technological <laughs> solutions for us to have this conversation. Because as I said, I mean, dude, this is the best IFL in, in a week mm-hmm. and it has been a week. Um, and so I'm just so grateful uh, I'm just so grateful for you, for Stevie, um, for what you're all putting out in the world. And I think that it is more important than ever. Yeah, agreed. I um, Yeah, I'm feeling a lot better right now. I heard a really, again, the meme, the memes right now. But it was like, this this week has been like a really hard year or something like that. It's like Yeah, no, totally. Like the wildest thing is thinking about where I was exactly a week ago. And just like tracking my own changes um it just really was just really wild um it was only right, eight days right. ago that I like ate in the restaurant um and I swear that was like a, a different decade uh, and this podcast <laughs> isn't going to come out into the summer and we have no idea where we'll be at that point but I think the bigger sort of universal message here is that you're not alone and there are people to receive you um you know Elisa we are her there's so many folks out there in online communities thank god for the internet right now um regardless of where we are whenever this podcast episode comes out like we all gotta stick together totally and i just you know i wish for every survivor to um to be able to turn their deep well of compassion inwards and onto themselves um now more than ever Mm -hmm. here here well, I think with that, we'll just uh, end our episode. But again, thank you so much. And um, yeah, let's stay in touch. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Adios. Ah, oh, that was beautiful. You're the best. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Be sure to subscribe and don't forget to check out our online community at weareher.net. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse or assault, you can always call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233.